Well, if you're ready to study your Bibles this morning, I am too. You could turn over to Proverbs. Uh, first, I want to submit a reasoning as to why we're not having a scripture reading this morning and, and probably won't be for the rest of this series. Uh, we began reading the word purely off accident. <laughs> uh, it was, it was a, a, I didn't put in the script for us to be seated during the, the, the reading of the word. But, but what happened was is we rolled with it because it felt appropriate. It felt appropriate because the use of action to remind ourselves of the truth is not a bad thing, right? It felt appropriate because in standing and reading the word, what we do is we remind ourselves is that there's a way higher than ours, that what we are about to listen to this morning, what we are about to come to this morning is not on the same level of our own thinking, our own ways of understanding. It is something separate, something different. If I could call you to remember Proverbs 3 from last week, to trust in the Lord with all, with, in, with all your understanding, to trust in his understanding and not lean on your own understanding, excuse me, sometimes we kneel to pray. We do it as a reminder of our humility and our reverence before God, our lowliness that we come to God with. Sometimes you raise your hands during worship and it's to remember your need like a, like a child's need, to remember God's glory in contrast of your own. These actions that we do are, 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 are signs of remembrance, like physical signs of remembrance, right? Which is pretty consistent. It's not that you have to Stand. It's not that you have to kneel. It's not that you have to raise your hands, but you do. And it's appropriate that you do. But like I said last week, this series that we're in is, is, isn't normative for us. A topical series based out of selected scriptures and proverbs using a historical church framework for understanding sin. All these are, are not normative to us, as I was saying. And so all that to say is for the sake of consistency and and honoring what we do here, we're not going to stand. But when we return to Mark in August, we will stand. And so you may wonder, because of the series title, we talked about joy in January. Why are we going to something related to joy again so soon? If you remember what we said back then in January, if you were here with us, you have something that God has given you that is ultimately his, that cannot be robbed, it cannot be stolen, it cannot be, it cannot be taken from you. And this, this series, what we're going through now, explains why that is so. Family, we have three great enemies before us in this life. The world, Satan, and what the series will help us understand and understand how to fight is the most dangerous of the three, our flesh, our flesh. As we began this series with a fight for joy with an emphatic declaration that this is not a battle over morality. Every day you wake up, you are not entering the crucible of being a good person. Every day you wake up and every minute you spend alive is a fight for your affections, a fight for your desires, a fight for your joy. See, the fight for joy has morality as the result and not the object. This fight for joy, the Christian's fight, has morality as a result and not the goal. 
Too often, discipleship in the church, conversations around Christian living are centered around moral fortitude. And that's not to say, so we're going to go outside and be nasty and be all right? No, no, that's not, that's not what it's saying. God is not tolerant of your sin. God is not pleased with your sin. And it is not God's intention that you remain in your sinfulness. No, God wants you to walk in his joy. As your pastor, it is my hope and my, 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 my ultimate desire to see you walk in the joy that Christ has purchased for you. So we ask the question, before we even start our time together, what is joy to the Christian? This isn't a question of salvation, okay? Let's start there. What we're talking about is not salvific terms. We're talking about what's on the other side of salvation. What is joy, true joy for the Christian? As Jesus says in John 15, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. True joy is found in Jesus and keeping his commands. It's, it's obedience. But if you, if you heard that and you think to yourself, so this is about morality, you're missing it. God give you ears to hear this morning. You are only so obedient to what you fear. Sin has you at the center of your affections and fears. Fearing God, beholding his holiness, keeps him at the center of your life and keeps your eyes gazed on him. As Proverbs 3, 6, and 7 puts it, fear the Lord, acknowledge him always, and he'll make straight your paths. Not having a right fear of the Lord causes us to keep ourselves in the center and thus robs our affections for God and keeping his commands. This is why God has given us this beautiful book of sayings and promises. This is why God has given us the Proverbs. And why we this morning and for the next few weeks will stay the course here, picking up and putting down many different verses and portions. Last week, we read Proverbs 9, which introduces us to the beautiful temptress, Lady Folly. Lady Folly stands in front of her home and she calls out to all whose paths are straight to come into her house of corpses. Lady Folly is an image, a figure of our flesh. Our flesh tempts us with sin, promising things it cannot give you. And yet we cash those fake checks, expecting prosperity in return. And instead, what we get is death. Lady Folly tempts us all those who are, whose path is straight. And we do this, we give in, we see her, and we're, we're, we're entertained by her, and we entertain her constantly. It is a pattern in our lives. 
in this series. We ask the question, how do we walk in Christ's victory over the patterns of sin, over seven very specific root sins? And so this week, I ask you to turn to Proverbs 6 as we examine the folly of slothfulness or laziness. I want to give you three types, three heads of slothfulness, of laziness this morning. That you might be able to do some real work examining your hearts before a holy God and ask him for his help. So let's read God's word and then would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God this morning. Proverbs 6, I have to look for it because my text didn't save it. Proverbs 6, starting in verse 6. Go to the ant, you slacker. Observe its ways and become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provisions in summer. It gathers its food during harvest. How long will you stay in bed, you slacker? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber, your need like a bandit. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, we need you this morning, and we ask for you to sustain us again. Sustain us with your grace, your kindness, to remind us of your love towards us. God, we need you this morning. Center our minds and our hearts around your word. Center our hope in you. God, reveal to us the truth of your word. Let it penetrate the darkest parts of our heart, the most strongest walls. Let them crumble this morning. God, would you gift me with clarity of speech and thought as the communicator and bless the congregation with understanding and wisdom and grace for my errors. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. The great R.C. Sproul says, time is the great equalizer. It is the only thing that everyone receives equally. The clock plays no favorites. It's true, right? It doesn't matter if you're married or single, if you have real babies or fur babies. It doesn't matter your race or what kind of job you have. We all get the same amount of time, 1,440 minutes every day. I can assure you, that I have wasted more of those minutes in my life than I have put them to good use. I can confess to you even that the one place, the one conversation my wife has gifted me the blessing of receiving is the one about how often I waste time. And so I want you to be confident that as I talk about a lazy person this morning, that you are hearing it from the chief of them. That is me. Like all things in this world, time is God's. God created it, and so it is his. 
just that statement alone, can't you see how loving it is for God to gift you with his time? And as loving as giving his children time is, he also gives limits, boundaries to this time. You get 24 hours and that's it. That's love. And he gifts you with something that's not promised to you, but it's given to you, right? That's love. God has determined what goodness and perfection would be in his administered gift of time. It is because the love of God that he has for you that you have time on your hands at all. Because limited time here for the Christian reminds us of infinite time in glory in his presence. You still sleeping. These mere 24 hours are just a shadow, a piece, a very small, a very small piece of the infinite amount of time stored up for us in heaven. This Finite time is finite. It's limited. Perfect as God made it to be. And in God's extended kindness, he creates his children to be stewards of his things. You have responsibilities. You have roles that you are called to be while you are here. Roles that you are called to fulfill while you are here. Gardens that you are called to tend while you are here. Joy is found in the bad days and good days because true joy is living every moment in light of the one who time does not bind. God is not bound by time. Since he made it, it cannot shape his days. It does not motivate his ways. It does not master him. Joy is held tightly when our days are lived faithfully to the one who holds our time. To waste time is to spend it on something that has no value. The time that you waste is real. It's not imaginative. It belongs to someone. And that someone isn't you. Laziness is a time thief. Laziness is an assumption that you have more of what's not promised to you. Time. Laziness, slothfulness is an entitlement to that which doesn't belong to you. Laziness has soul-destroying capability and lacks compassion for others. Laziness seeks to rob God of his time and doesn't love others well at all. For those walking the straight path that we read about last week in Proverbs 3, laziness entices you with self-gratifying seduction tactics. But when you enter her home, all her residents are dead. Laziness testifies to others that your God is yourself. It does not, it is not a quality that is compatible with fellowship and brotherhood and sisterhood. It does not serve anyone well. Proverbs 10 verse 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the slugger to those who send him. I don't know about vinegar in the teeth. That's weird. 
But I know about smoke in the eyes. That is something I've experienced before. Back when I was a student pastor, we would have these bonfires, these sort of campouts, right? And you would lay the fire in the middle and we would do worship around the fire. It never failed, never failed that the wind would blow and smoke would get into someone's face. And what happens is immediate irritation. Your eyes itch, they burn, they get all watery, your face gets hot. It's disgusting. It never failed that it would happen. That's what laziness does to the corporate gathering. It distracts. It doesn't contribute. It annoys and it causes pain. It assumes the grace of God and the grace of others will still be given to you, though you abuse them both. Laziness looks simple. In your mind right now, you have a picture of laziness. And probably you're not in this picture. For you, it looks like someone who plays too much video games. It looks like saving tomorrow, saving for tomorrow what could be done today. It looks like all these other things. Maybe you're thinking about people, specific people. You're probably thinking about your, your children. You're probably thinking about people you work with. You're probably thinking about specific friends. You're probably thinking about people that you fit into boxes and terms like socialists and liberals. You're probably thinking about a specific group of people. I can tell you that growing up as a brown-skinned brother in America, laziness is assumed upon me. You have to work extra hard just not to fit that stereotype. Whatever laziness looks like to you in your mind's eye this moment, it looks simple. It looks simple, but actually it is complex. It is complex. And this sloth has three heads. You can be thankful for the image of a three-headed sloth. You're welcome. My hope this morning is that God would grant you the wisdom to see where we can all, we can all repent from our affections towards being lazy and run toward God and have joy. I want to steer you away from the idea that you and I are going to fit into one of these types neatly and that we would only fit into one of these types only. Okay? No, this is a framework to help you understand that at the root of many of our sins is laziness, period. Not one of these types. You are lazy and you experience them all in some way. The first head is the sluggard. The first head on the sloth, the first kind of product laziness creates is the sluggard. This is probably the most common idea of a lazy person. There's nothing beautiful about a slug. If you think so, I'm on the pulpit now and I'm telling you you're wrong. Slugs are not pretty. To be a sluggard, which is an ugly word because it reminds you of a slug, literally means to be habitually lazy. Which is not really good help because laziness looks different in many spaces. So for the sake of our understanding, the sluggard in scripture is considered to just be an idle person. An idle person. The person who doesn't move or moves slow to do important things. Look at the text. This is wisdom for the idle. It says sluggard, look at the ant. Slacker, look at the ant. 
The ant has no need to be poked and prodded or reminded that it has to do its work and do its work in time. The sluggard oversleeps regularly. The sluggards are masters of their own comforts. The sluggard is idle and apathetic. The irony here is that the sluggard actually works very hard. It works very hard to create its own lifestyle. To be a sluggard takes incredible amounts of practice. It takes practice to give into your natural, natural inclination to not do. And the more you practice it, the more deceitful you will be about it. The more manipulative you will become about keeping your created environment intact. The sluggard is full of excuses. Always having a reason why things that should have been done are not done. Look at Proverbs 22, verse 13. It says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the streets. The sluggard is anxious and not focused. The eyes of the sluggard are not on the things that God has given him to do, to work at, to be diligent and faithful and fruitful at. But rather their eyes are on the many things outside that will bring them harm. They're pulled away by the many interests they have. To do God's work is secondary to my entertainment and leisure. Why? Because the sluggard's God is not God. The sluggard's God is its own self. And it worships itself with leisure, comfort. These things dull your senses. Amusement gets old. It does. It gets old. I'm tired of some parts of Disney. Sorry. But I go to Epcot and I'm bored. (laughs) I've been there too many times. I'm bored when I go there. And yet I paid all this money to be entertained. The sluggard is sort of a celebrated part of American life. Work for 25 years, then kick back at home and relax. As if Titus 2 is not a garden you are called to tend. Older women disciple the young. Older men disciple the young. The sluggard does not respond like Paul who says, I exist. My whole life exists to be spent. No. The sluggard uses good things to not do the hard things. An excuse I have heard many times before I was married or had kids of my own from older men I was trying to to seek uh, to do life with, to get coaching, to be mentored by, is I'm just too busy. My family needs me. As though witnessing that work would not minister to me and save my wife and children from my own tendencies to be a sluggard. Are you hearing me this morning? Derek Kidner says in his commentary on Proverbs, the wise man will learn while there is still time. He knows that the sluggard is no freak, but as often as not is an ordinary man who has made too many excuses, too many refusals, and too many postponements. Due to the fall, lady tempts us with laziness. The sluggard is probably the most common picture you think about when laziness is said out loud. The one who doesn't work. But the sluggard works. And yet, work is not the product of the fall. Work is not 
the product of the fall. Humanity was made to work. The fall didn't introduce work. It changed the way work hits us. And there's where the sluggard is born, controlling the content of its work so it can escape the consequences of hard work. The sluggard not only works for the wrong thing, but he works for the wrong reasons. But there is another type of laziness, the person who works and works and works and works and works. The lazy busy, the workaholic. Busyness gives you no immunity from laziness. You could recognize the sins of neglect and procrastination and overindulgence and abuse of rest and still not recognize the total gambit of laziness. The workaholic is busy. Busy taking care of to-do lists filled with things of secondary importance. A lot of us here have many things that the Lord has gifted us the responsibility to work in. However, there may be some things on your plate now that was not God's design to have for you now. Every, not every opportunity is the right opportunity for this season. Busyness does not equal diligence. Busyness does not equal faithfulness. Busyness does not equal fruitfulness. In the madness of our lives, busyness forgets that you have a soul that needs to be tended to. I heard a quote once and it said, busyness has killed more Christians than bullets. How can we know? How can we know? How can we see what lazy busy is? And there is, in my opinion, no greater teachers of this lesson than two wonderful women of God, Martha and Mary. Luke 10 Verse 38 through 42, I'll read it to you if you can't get there quick enough. It says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. One thing is necessary. Time with Jesus. If you have no time to have unhurried time with God, then your busyness is simple. And this assumes that you already have unhurried time with your family and other peoples you are accountable for. There are priorities and there are secondary things. Your soul, your family's soul, the people in your church, and I'll argue this all day. Those are gardens that the God of time has called you to tend. Workaholics use labor to center themselves around themselves. Your goals, your accomplishments, your accolades, that is not what God has given us work for. Our work, even in the secular world, is different than secular perspectives. Our work, sacred and secular, exists for the good of others. 
to give your life to the grind, to busy yourself with things doesn't constitute diligence. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only into poverty. The Hebrew writing here, the poverty in the Hebrew writing here is not financial poverty. It's a snare of death, a poverty of the soul. Busyness is laziness because when you are too busy to steward correctly, you're not stewarding faithfully. You don't have time to love your spouse well. You don't have time to raise up your children well. And I mean raise up, not provide amusement for. I mean soul-tending, soul-nurturing, raising up of your children. You don't have time to tend to the church. You don't have time to make that Bible study or that book study or to make community group. You don't have time to make it to service on Sunday. Workaholics, like sluggards, put self in the place of God at the center of their lives and neither lives to love, neither lives to worship, and yet all, there is another person still of laziness. The zombie. The zombie is a desireless person. It's a laziness that steals from stewardship. Zombies can have busy lives, but it's a life of just enough was done to get back to enjoying the comforts. Responsibilities are taken care of, but only for presentation's sake. The zombie performs so it can get what it craves, comfort. The zombie sleepwalks all week, but lives on the weekends. The zombie is on habitual autopilot. The zombie hardly notices anything around them. They let things run their course just so that they could get on with their lives. People who wake up, work because they have to, do only what is required and not what is excellent. Come home, do whatever duty needs to be done there with one thing on their minds, the sofa. This is deadly laziness. As one commentator puts it, the zombie is trying to preserve personal comforts through the candy of endless amusements. Sloth is a chronic quest for worldly comfort that compounds boredom. Boredom with God, boredom with people, boredom with life. The zombie's things of first importance are like the others, its own interests. It has lost the desire, though, to love and lost taste for what is truly satisfying. It comes to the church here, but it's not really here. It's not paying attention to the proclamation of the salvific bomb that can revive its heart. It actually sits in the chairs in opposition to the preacher's words, looking for trigger words or buzzwords so they could get upset at. Zombie has no peace. The zombie comes to church and expects to hear what they want to hear from God and not what actually God is communicating to them. It comes hungry to church, but instead of everlasting bread, it comes to the Lord's table with the next big game on its mind. It is focused on what the world offers and not the church. It has moved into Ladies Folly's home and made residence among the dead there and does not care that the other residents are dead. I want to remind you, family, that though there are three persons to laziness, you and I have the sinful fruit of all three of them. 
the sluggard, idolizing free time, the workaholic seeking self-constructed self-worth, and the zombie who sleepwalks through life. Like all three, we have removed God from the center of our lives and have eaten the fruit of our own sinfulness. All three have set aside the joy that God has set before them and traded it in for temporary, non-lasting joy. God hates the sloth. The slothful takes the God things, the things that God has given us for our flourishing, and it twists it in the name of its own gain. God is not lazy. God is not lazy. He does not work so that we can be free from diligent, faithful stewardship. It is his kindness that work was an intention from humanity from the start. It is not a product of the fall. Work did not enter with sin. Sin made work and lack of work sinful. God is in the business of comfort. But being comforted by God is not the same thing as working yourself to be comfortable. There is no faithful saint in heaven who said confidently before the Lord that he had delivered them from their sin so they can be comfortable on their couch. We have not been designed to live in a state of perpetual vacation. Family, there is hope for the sloth this morning. There is hope for you and I yet. There is one who did all the work so that we wouldn't have to live with work as our God. There is one who worked hard to comfort us in his righteousness that doesn't result in our comfort. When all was bleak in the garden, when sin entered the world and cosmos was fractured, God went to work. I just watched the Chronicles of Narnia with my children, and there's a scene that preached to me. I'm going to share it with you. Narnia is this magical place, right? These four young children just happen to enter it on accident. It's snowing, it's cold, and one of the inhabitants there tells them it's always winter and never Christmas. In this world, the witch Jadis rules, and she is wicked. She is the reason for the cold. She is the reason why there is fear among the inhabitants and creatures there. But at a dinner table with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they explain to the four children that though it is always cold, though it is always winter and never Christmas, though there is discomfort, they have hope. Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is on the move. When Adam and Eve sinned, family, God was on the move. He sacrificed an animal to provide them clothing. When the sinfulness of the world was just too much to bear, God was on the move. He sent his son to die in his enemy's place so that his enemies could become family. Oh, church, there is hope for the sloth. Our sinfulness demands our death, but God would not let that stand. He sent Jesus to come work, work on our behalf, living perfectly, keeping the law rightly, loving his neighbors mercifully so that you and I can be privileged to do the same. Whether you're a sluggard, a workaholic, a zombie, or all three across the board, there is room for you at 
at the cross. God can redeem you. You are not without hope. Ask God to search your heart. Examine yourself prayerfully and rigorously. Find the places that you have believed the empty lies of comfort this world promises but cannot deliver and repent from your idolatry. Confess your laziness and live beholding the holiness of God so that your joy may be full and you are able to keep his commands. Stand with me and worship.